Well, hello everyone. Let me say hello to you all. It's good to see your faces and it's good to be with you all again here at Hollywell. I'll bring you greetings from my home church of Little Hill. That's in Wigston in Leicester. And it is indeed good to be with you. Thank you, Dan, for reading God's Word a moment or two ago. Would you turn back to that portion of God's Word with me to Esther chapter 2. And thank you, Barclay, for leading us this morning. We live in an age of identity crisis and identity politics. People are questioning more than ever today, aren't they, what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman and all shades in between, we might say. And yet, here we are, we're going to be looking at something from God's Word from the 5th century BC, and we have the audacity to think it's got something to say to us about these things in the 21st century. And yet, it does, because here we're going to be looking at some people just like ourselves, men and women. We're going to be looking at some characters. We're going to have a character study this morning, some bad models, a bad model of manhood, a good model of manhood and a good model of womanhood to learn from this morning. Now, five years ago, Joseph took you through this book, and I'd uh, commend that to you to go and look on the website. I checked that it was there. So it's five years ago, so hopefully not too fresh in your minds just to uh, think you're going over ground you know too well. But I would commend to you the, the, the series and reading this afternoon, if, not, if you don't know this story, the whole of the story, because we haven't got time to do that this morning. And yet we do need to know something about what's going on here before we delve into this chapter. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you what happens in the story in brief. It's an amazing book. It's a unique book in the Bible. Some men of the past, great men like Luther, thought it shouldn't be in the Bible because it doesn't mention the name of God. What a strange thing for a book of the Bible. God's name is absent and yet he is the unseen presence behind everything that happens. In fact, I would say, isn't that the whole point that the Holy Spirit has revealed here to us? God's name isn't mentioned and yet God is present and active. And often our problem is that, isn't it? We think, where is God in our life and circumstances? And he is present and powerfully active in our lives as well. Now this book, Esther, gives in its big picture the same big picture story of the whole of the Bible. And that big picture is this, that it is God who is in charge, God is sovereign over this world, and it is God who is working out his purposes, whatever people do. And our God is a God of salvation. The Bible is a book about salvation. God is a God who saves people. He saves us eternally. He wants the people for himself. He is building the church. You're part of it here. And therefore he protects his people and looks after his people. And in this story here in history, in the 5th century BC, God does look after his people. They're under great threat. We didn't get to chapter 3 where the big baddie of the peace appears, a man called Haman. And this wicked man, Haman, is so offended by one of the Jews, the man in this chapter we read of, Mordecai, because he won't bow down to him. He's so offended, he determines not just to have this man destroyed, but the whole of this man's race, the Jewish race, are due to be annihilated. 
in a certain point in time. He tricks the king, King Xerxes, to write a royal decree which could not be revoked that the people would be wiped out. But they weren't. God turned the tables on this wicked man, Haman. It's a wonderful story as you see it all played out. And instead, the Jewish people are able to defeat their enemies. And they still celebrate it today, the Jews, and the Feast of Purim. I think it's in March. It's a wonderful story. God saving his people. And it's very much resonant for us today, isn't it? In our day and age, we still have anti-Semitism in this 75th year when we're remembering the Holocaust. These things have been repeated through history, haven't they? And God had to save his people, we might say, because it was from the Jewish nation that his saviour, the Messiah, was to come. If they were wiped out, then his plan and promise that he would bring Jesus through these people would never have happened. So he was going to protect his people and deliver them. Let's just have a little bit more background before we get into these characters this morning. 5th century BC, 112 years previously, God's people had been taken captive, taken into exile. That is the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been decimated by the Assyrians. And now, 112 years before this, a great king of an empire, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Judah and taken God's people captive. It was a punishment upon them for their disobedience. A little bit like the psalm we read earlier where God's people were uh, in trouble for their sin. And so now time goes on. Sixty years later, King Cyrus of Persia has taken over this empire from Nebuchadnezzar. And he says that God's people could go back to Jerusalem. And so there had been a trickling back of some of the people. Relatively few had gone back. You read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And now we come to another king. This king, King Xerxes, now the king of the empire of the Medes and Persians, a vast empire. And this is where we're reading in chapter 2 of this man Mordecai and King Xerxes and Esther, the cousin of Mordecai, the one he adopts as his daughter. And we're in Susa the winter palace of this great king, King Xerxes. And we're 485 BC. Chapter 1 has given the story of how this king, this erratic and emotional king, had deposed his own queen and sent her packing because she dared to defy him. She refused to parade before him at a banquet before him and his nobles. And so in a drunken rage, he banishes her. And there's no way back because it's the law of the Medes and Persians that couldn't be changed. So in his anger, he's shot himself in the foot, as it were. He sacked his wife and sent her off. That's chapter 1. He took bad advice from his chauvinistic advisors who said, if you let Queen Vashti get away with this, who knows what trouble there might be for us men in our households. They feared a revolution at home. And so they said, get rid of her. That's the right thing to do. That's the backdrop. So let's get into chapter 2. We're going to look first of all at a bad model of manhood. A bad model of manhood in our first four verses concerning this proud king, King Xerxes. Look at what it says here. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done 
and what he had decreed about her. Actually, the words could be read, what had been done, what had been decreed. And you get the sense maybe like many a ruler after him and before him and many a politician, he is shifting the blame. What had been decreed? These bad advisers of mine. That's a possibility here as we look at verse 1. And quite possibly, I'd suggest to you, some of the commentators say, he was feeling a sense of regret. His anger subsided and he's thinking, what have I done? He's missing this queen. Yes, he had all the others in the harem, but this queen, beautiful Queen Vashti, he's perhaps regretting having got rid of her and he is lonely and missing the comfort of his wife, lost to him forever. Some Jewish commentators on this chapter say that King Xerxes actually didn't just banish his queen, but when some sense came to him, he... he reflected in what he'd been advised and he actually banished the advisers and even beheaded them. And that's interesting because now he's got some other advisers. Can you imagine how they were feeling? Now he's in a mood and he is in a mood because historians tell us that there's a gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of about three years during which King Xerxes is on a massive military campaign. He's gathered the biggest army of history so far. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, tells us, he's writing around the same time, that it was the biggest army ever assembled and King Xerxes was out to conquer the land of Greece. His father had started and failed and so he was going to win this great victory. And off he goes to battle after chapter 1. This is about 480 BC. And he is defeated. Some initial victories and then humiliating defeat. Despite his massive army, he comes home with his tail between his legs. And here he is in chapter 2, verse 1. And you can just see how he must be feeling. Utterly punctured in his pride. Deflated and melancholy. And where's his wife to comfort him? Oh, yes, I got rid of her. What a fool. And he reflects on his stupid decision and his anger. That's the context. Let me give you something else that tells you something of the character of this man. Some archaeologists discovered in the royal palace in Persepolis, another part of his kingdom, a foundation stone, which is really interesting. It confirms the historical accuracy of the book of Esther, incidentally. But this is what King Xerxes thought about himself. Just listen to this. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kind of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. And so it goes on. So he's certainly no shrinking violet, is he, King Xerxes? And here he is in this condition of melancholy and perhaps his younger advisers around him, if the others were banished, quaking in their boots and thinking, what shall we do? Who knows what this erratic king is going to do next? Because the secular historians tell us he was a a man who could explode with anger, as we see in chapter 1. And then, perhaps like many who made decisions when they were drunk or angry, he's regretting his decision. And so they come up with this plan to cheer up the king. And it's a plan that can't fail. It's a plan that appeals to all the baser instincts of men. 
the decision is made to call a beauty contest so he can choose the most beautiful woman out of the kingdom to be his trophy wife, to boost his ego, to take the place of Queen Vashti. And if we're right in reading that he was missing Queen Vashti, how quickly he seems to forget about her. That's often the case with men, isn't it? So fickle we men can be in these things. And often we have to admit when the word love is used, often we're talking about lust. We're here thinking about physical beauty, aren't we? How could the king not be interested in what it says in verse 2? A search to be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And why are they being chosen? Verse 4 tells us. Women to be chosen, a woman to be chosen from amongst them who will please the king. Choose a girl that pleases the king. This is a very low view of women. Women as objects to please men. This is what we might call the love island mentality, isn't it? You know what that program's about? I don't watch it myself. I've seen enough clips of it to know what it's all about. It's everywhere in the media, isn't it? But this is love island mentality. It's a very damaging view of men and women uh, as physical specimens that we should choose a partner just in those terms It's unhelpful, to say the least, to think in that way. Hugely damaging way of thinking about men and women. What do we learn from this bad model of manhood? Well, various things we can learn from him to avoid. First of all, we shouldn't envy the rich and powerful. We shouldn't envy them, we should pray for them. That's what we're taught in Scripture, isn't it? To pray for those who are in authority over us. Even if they are wicked rulers, we must pray for them. They're in a a huge, a position of huge responsibility and the burden is massive upon them and brings huge temptations. Don't envy the rich and powerful. If you're ambitious for riches and for power, be careful. Remember what Jesus says? Very few rich people are saved. And... In positions of power will be those like this man here with weaknesses. And we have those in positions of power. We know perhaps too well, we know their weaknesses. We should be praying for them. And we should be praying for their advisors. That they would be given good advice. Common sense advice and good moral advice and even better Christian advice. Pray that God would raise up Christian advisors who would have the ear of our rulers. Pray for good advisors, not those who would lobby with immoral principles and men we need to beware of pride don't we boasting in who we are boasting of what we can do boasting that we are the king of our lives the great king as king xerxes boasted there is only one king of kings and lord of lords and that's jesus he is the one we are to bow the knee to and we're to do it now before that day when we will have to if we've not done it before the end of our lives. The one we will bow the knee to and acknowledge that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then men, we mustn't confuse lust for love, must we? Jesus tells us that lust with the eyes is to commit adultery. And lust with the eyes can lead to actual physical 
lust, the act of adultery rather, and all the misery that that leads to. We need to be doing what Jesus says and plucking out our eyes rather than falling into sin, the sin of lust. And we must learn, mustn't we, to value character above physical beauty. Men, we must learn to value character. Women as well, but above physical beauty. And we must not see women as objects just of our pleasure. Apparently Xerxes himself was tall and handsome, the sort of action hero figure that people look up to today. But though he was a fine physical specimen, he was weak in character. He was weak in character. And if you, like him, have a temper, if you're prone to anger, pray for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. And don't live like this man, a life of regret. If you've read what he's doing here in chapter 1, right? Because of stupid, sinful mistakes you make, because of your anger, maybe your drunkenness. Is anyone prone to drink? Live a life instead of repentance. That's what the scripture commends to us, doesn't it? It's godly sorrow which brings repentance, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Don't live a life of regret. Whereas worldly sorrow, says Paul, leads to death. I was thinking recently of Judas, who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, after that he showed regret and remorse but no repentance. And so he took his life and went to damnation, to hell. Live a life of repentance. So that's the first thing then, a bad model of manhood to learn from this morning. Let's look on to the next verses, to a good model of manhood. Verses 5 to 11, a good model of manhood. Here we're thinking of humble Mordecai. Humble Mordecai, what a lovely character he is. He was a Jew, we're told that here in verse 6 about him. Actually, if you read correctly verse 6, it's not he who was carried into exile, but his great-grandfather, Kish. So he had grown up in Babylon or in this empire, Persian empire. And it's interesting that his name may be derived from the Babylonian god's name, Marduk. So the Hebrew version, Mardukei, Mordecai. But some say it could actually translate as little man. Now, if that's right, that's interesting. Here we've got Xerxes on the one hand, tall, handsome figure, and here we've got little man, Mordecai. And if you're short of stature, you may be feeling kind of put upon and laughed at and mocked. That's what people do, don't they? And sometimes those who are short of stature overcompensate for that. But listen, the true giant here, if he was a little man, is Mordecai. He's a giant, a spiritual giant, because it's character that counts with God. And what a character he is, a man who shows great humility and godliness. If you want to be a good man, you must first be a godly man. And we see that in Mordecai. He is a godly man. Chapter 4 shows that to us particularly where we find Mordecai praying in sackcloth and ashes for the deliverance of God's people. Chapter 4 and verse 1. He was a man of prayer. A good man, a godly man is a man of prayer. Are you men, men of prayer? 
He was a man who prayed about God's people. He cared about God's people. Do you pray for God's people? Or are your prayers centered so much upon yourself and your little world, on your life, on your work struggles and everything else? Good to pray about those things. But what about the rest of God's people? The persecuted church across the world. Godly men are men of prayer and men of faith. Chapter 4, again, verse 14, shows Mordecai's faith. When Esther, he is encouraging Esther to go to the king to say a word to get God's people delivered and she's hesitating and he says to her, even if you don't go, God will bring deliverance from somewhere else because he has faith in a sovereign God. And that's a godly person, someone who has faith in God. What's your faith like, you men? Are you men of faith? And then his lovely, caring character. We see it in various ways. We see him even caring for this wicked king. At the end of this chapter, we didn't read it, but Mordecai uncovers a conspiracy against wicked King Xerxes. And he might have thought, well, I'll let them get on with it because he's such a rotten king. But he doesn't. He tells Esther who tells the king. And the king gets rid of these conspirators, gets them hung, and uh, it's recorded in the annals. But he doesn't receive anything, Mordecai. Not immediately. You see, he cared not for his own self-interest. He just cared about the king. Just as we were saying earlier, we should pray for those in authority over us and care about them because they have such an influence over so many others as well. And so he cared about the king rather than his own interests. We can leave those with God. James 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and in due time he will exalt you. And that's what happened eventually. The king did exalt Mordecai in time. But in this chapter here, we particularly see the caring nature of a godly man. Just look at what Mordecai did for this girl, Hadassah. That's her Jewish name, as verse 7 tells her. The Persian version is Esther. She was his cousin. She was an orphan. No mother, no father. A bit like our friend here, was his name? Jalesi. Did I get that right? The Malawian boy, an orphan. And doesn't the word of God tell us the true religion, James again, James tells us in his letter that true religion which God values is to look after orphans and widows. And here is Mordecai taking as his own daughter his cousin Esther. He takes her into his household and brings her up as his own. In our sad age of absentee fathers, how we need men to be like Mordecai. To care and to have compassion, as we thought with the children earlier. The compassion that our God has, that we should have. For those who are committed to our care, those we are responsible for in our families. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, if we don't provide for relatives, particularly our household, our immediate relatives, you might say, we are worse than unbelievers, we've denied the faith. And so Mordecai shows that kind of care in adopting Esther and bringing her up. He gives her wise instruction. Verse 10, he was not afraid to command her. Can you see that there? Not to. He forbade her from telling the king about her Jewish um, background and she submitted happily to him as his 
daughter. Men, we must instruct and command and discipline our children. Not be afraid to do that, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then verse 11 I find most touching is his daily concern for this girl. Did you see that in verse 11? How we read how he went to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. How his heart as a parent must have been broken. She'd been taken out of his godly care and she was a godly woman too and into this pagan sordid situation of this beauty contest. And so he was toing and froing to find out what was happening to this daughter of his. Now we may not be able to, to do that as parents of children who've grown up and fled the nest. We might not be able to go to and fro to their work gates and find out what's going on. We might want to do that, but we can go to and fro with our daily concern to the courts of heaven. That's wonderful, isn't it? In daily prayer for those we love. So we've seen a bad model of manhood in King Xerxes and a good model of manhood in Mordecai. But of course we have to remember that the perfect model of manhood is the Lord Jesus Christ, who Mordecai is a shadow of here. The one who cares for us like no other. Who humbled himself to the death of the cross that we might be saved. Whose word instructs us and disciplines us every day. Who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Who, during his life on earth, was that model to us. We might say of godliness, of prayerful trust in his Father. And we're to follow his perfect model. Who are you following, men, this morning? As your models? Is it the sort of character we see here in Mordecai? A humble, caring, godly, prayerful man of faith? Or is it the vain, gym-obsessed muscle-headed action heroes of our movie world. You know what I'm saying? Let's see then finally a good model of womanhood. Verses 12 to 18. Esther, the chosen queen, a good model of womanhood. Verse 7. She seems to be a victim of her own beauty, doesn't she, here? She's chosen because she's beautiful. She can't help that. She can't help that she's beautiful. You can't help it, can you? If you're beautiful, that's the way you were born. What can you do about that? But... Just think of the cost of it to her. It wasn't easy. She was taken into this competition, taken into the palace. Maybe some of the girls chosen, it was a leg up the ladder and it was an improvement for their home situations. But think of her, snatched out of a godly household into this pagan palace with all the sordid details that follow. It was a very fragile success. If you were chosen, you never left. You went into the, the harem, verse 3. You went into the care of Haggai here. I love that word, the care of Haggai. Let's substitute the proper word, the custody of Haggai. You could never leave. The girls in the harem, what a life they had. They couldn't have a proper married life. They were there just for the pleasure of the king. And even the chosen one here couldn't depend upon the king to be faithful, if you can use that word in this context of harems and women galore and so on. Your favour depended on the whim of the king if he sent for you. 
But it's hard to see, isn't it, sometimes, how in a situation like this, God could do such a thing, allow such a thing to happen to this person. And how could God allow her to go into such a morally decadent scenario? And yet he did. And yet she came forth as gold. It is possible in the most daunting and difficult circumstances to honour God and to shine forth for him. God's greater purpose was fulfilled as she submitted to his will. Helen Rosevere, you may know of her. She was a missionary in the Congo. She was brutalized. She was raped. And you can read her biographies. And they're wonderful stories of what she did as she submitted to God's will. And God used her, even though terrible things happened to her. God does that. God is able to to do things like that. Notice again here how physical beauty is emphasized. But it's character that shines forth. Character. You see it here, verse 10, in Esther's dutiful submission to her father when he commands her not to give away her Jewish background. You see it in her modest acceptance of Haggai's advice of what to take in when she went to the inn to the king. She was willing to listen to his advice. I wonder if that's a challenge for any woman here today. It's huge pressure being a woman today, isn't it, in our feminist world. I'm not anti-feminist by any means. I think this Me Too generation, there's a lot that we men need to take on board from all that's happening. But of course, as ever, things go to extremes, don't they? And we've got to say, well, what does God's word say? How do we get this right? And we see here that Esther was a godly woman, just as Mordecai was a godly man. She shared the faith of her adoptive father. How do we know that? Look at verse uh, chapter 4, if you want to flick over to it. We find her committing people to fast for God's people. That means to pray. She's a woman of prayer, a woman of faith. She's also an intelligent woman, a courageous woman. The story shows us that and how she plans things as they go on. She was brave. But yet she was submissive. And that's a a real challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for women. It's a challenge for men as well. Are you good at listening to advice? This is for all of us. Sometimes we always know what's best, don't we? But she was willing to listen to advice and she benefited from that advice and won through. And the word of God shows us what true beauty is. True beauty, as God defines it, is inner beauty, the beauty of character. And it includes submissiveness. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, how he's spoken of in Isaiah 53 and verse 2. He had no beauty, all majesty to attract us, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Lord Jesus Christ was not beautiful physically, we're being told. But he was beauty personified in his nature, in his character. And then Peter tells us, doesn't he? 1 Peter 3, 3 to 6, speaking to women. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. I'll stop there for a moment. Incidentally, there's nothing wrong with wearing, dressing nicely this morning. I can see you all have made an effort. I'm so glad this morning. Nothing wrong with it, is it? A modicum of... We have haircuts and we have shaves and we clean our teeth so we're not offensive and we cover our spots where they come out. So we won't 
distract people or offend people. It's right, isn't it, to dress appropriately. But again, the extremes, these 12 months of beauty treatments, that's not what makes people beautiful in God's sight. Let me carry on reading what Peter says. Your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment. Instead, it should come from that, should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. That's interesting, isn't it? What pressure on women to give way to fear. To those who would say that Esther here, a feminist, might say, was being weak and ineffectual, letting down her sex by submitting to men in what she does. But look, she is the human linchpin of the story. She's the one principally that God uses here in this incident to deliver his people. That's one of the lessons of the book, isn't it? And so she wins the favor of Haggai, the eunuch, who, verse 9 tells us, promotes her to the best place of the harem. She wins through the favor of all who saw her, verse 15 tells us. That must mean the other girls in the harem. That's amazing, isn't it, with all the competition? She wins them over. Is it her beauty? No, they're all beautiful. She wins them over because of her character. She wins the king over because of her character. Verse 17, he's attracted to her more than any other of the women. She won his favor and approval. It's not outward beauty. Have you ever known somebody, I've known people who were beautiful outwardly and then I got to know them and I didn't want to know them again because they were ugly in character. She won over, finally, the king and became the queen to great rejoicing. A big party was thrown, a banquet and a public holiday. Some translations even so say tax remission. <laughs> Everybody wins. Everybody was celebrating when she was made the queen. So we've had then three models of human identity this morning. A bad model of manhood to avoid, a good model of manhood in humble Mordecai, and a good woman model of womanhood in the chosen queen, Queen Esther. But let's not miss as we finish the hidden purpose, the overall theme of the book rather, the hidden actor here. It's not these characters, but it's God, isn't it? Weaving together the lives of these people to bring about his purposes. And that's the big lesson for us this morning, even learning what we do about these characters. If you're a believer, you're his Chosen, like Esther was chosen, one of his chosen people. And as we submit to his sovereign will, his sovereign will, whatever our particular circumstances, however difficult they might be, if we submit to him, men and women, and serve him as we should, we can know he will always bring about what is best. Our sovereign God of salvation.